Today on episode number 252 of the Teaching in Higher Ed podcast, Meha Bali and Autumn Keynes speak about ownership, equity, and agency in faculty development. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Hello and welcome to this episode of Teaching in Higher Ed. I'm Bonnie Stahoviak, and this is the space where we explore the art and science of being more effective at facilitating learning. We also share ways to improve our productivity approaches so we can have more peace in our lives and be even more present for our students. Today, I am welcoming back to the show two former guests and people I just really enjoy having conversations with. Autumn Keynes refers to herself as a liminal space, part technologist, part artist, part manager, part synthesizer. She is passionate about the use of technology in education and the many differing facets of how technology impacts society and culture. She likes spending time at the place where different disciplines intersect. Also back on the show today is Maha Bali, an associate professor of practice at the Center for Learning and Teaching at the American University in Cairo. She's a full-time faculty developer, and she also teaches digital literacies and intercultural learning. She refers to herself as a writeaholic slash learnaholic, and I think after you listen to this interview, you'll see many reasons why. Autumn and Maha, welcome back to Teaching in Higher Ed. Thank you. It's great to be back. I know there has been a lot going on in both of your lives, and so we'll try to narrow it down a little to maybe one thing. <laughs> Autumn, what's been new in your life since we last had a chance to talk? Well, I've started at a new institution. I'm now at the University of Michigan Dearborn in the hub for teaching and learning resources. Super excited to be there for so many reasons. Just a great team and a great group of people, but it's also my hometown. I'm living in my childhood home and I'm back in my hometown. So it's kind of kind of interesting and surreal. I had seen on Twitter that you had made a move, but I did not realize it was to your hometown. How wonderful. Yeah, it's really great to be closer to friends and family. So that's really a neat thing in my life right now. And we'll skip over any conversations about weather because that'll just uh, create some friction Mm -hmm. that doesn't need to be there. (laughs) 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 And uh, (laughs) Maha, what have you been up to since we last got to talk? I was just thinking before... I've been with you on the show talking about intercultural learning, right? Mm-hmm. And since that, since then, I've been teaching a course about digital literacies and intercultural learning. And since Autumn and I finished writing um, our article about equity and agency in professional development, I've worked in faculty professional development. I've been working with Catherine Cronin and Mia Zamora on something called Equity Unbound, which is an open, connected intercultural learning curriculum that is equity-focused. And I was using that in my class last semester, and Mia and Catherine and I were all working on it. It was open, and other educators could participate. And the website of that is unboundeq.creativitycourse.org. This semester, we're not running it in a synchronous way, but the resources are still up there, and I still use them, and other people can use them anytime. So I was just interested in the connection between the article we're doing about equity that we're going to talk about today, and also that the last one of the one of the times I came, I can't remember which one of them. 
one of the times I came on with you, we were talking about intercultural learning. So it all sort of fits together in that way. Oh, yeah. And one of the things I don't know, I think you you realized this because I think we we corresponded over Twitter, but you really helped me see an added benefit to having invested all the time and money into transcripts for the podcast that, that I just didn't conceive of at all. My, my big thing, my big purpose for doing it was for accessibility reasons. But you helped me see through that project that it also opened up opportunities for social annotation, which I know we're going to talk about as well today. So that was just, wow. I mean, it was really fun because it would be pretty difficult to try to annotate on top of an audio file. I mean, it could be done, but it, you know, you'd have to sort of hack your way into it to my knowledge. And then we don't have any sort of way of, you know, capturing a clip the way some podcasts do, but it, it was really fun to have that as a, as an option. I was going to say, awesome. I don't even remember having that conversation with you. (laughs) (laughs) And I just wanted to thank you for the transcripts because I actually used an episode that you did with Karen Cangliosi in a faculty discussion board. It was in the back end of the LMS. It wasn't open, but it was part of many resources. And one of them was the podcast. And I had somebody who said they didn't have time to listen to the podcast. It was a point that I wanted to make that was in there. And I was able to just go to the transcript, copy and paste that little paragraph and bring it into our discussion. So yeah, those transcripts really do help to make it more flexible and bring the conversation into multiple environments. Oh, that's so fun to hear about. So Thanks to each of you for helping me see other ways that they're they're benefiting people because, you know, we, we don't always necessarily get to hear. And there's a number of people that work on that. One, one is Sierra, who actually takes the automated transcripts and then gets them to actually <laughs> make sense and puts the person's name to, next to them. And then Andrew and I sort of take it from there for actually getting it up on the website. But that's not why we're here today. <laughs> we're here today to talk about this wonderful article that you wrote a call for promoting ownership, equity, and agency in faculty development via connected learning. And there's so much for us to unpack here. And I wonder if we could just start out with the idea of you really had this vision of how this would be able to cross institutional and even national boundaries and how it could combine equity, social justice, and power differences into consideration promoting educator agency. There's so much here. So I, I would love to have each of you share just a little bit about your vision for sharing about these topics and approaches and theories. Well, I think Meha approached me about this article and I was just, you know, I felt really drawn to doing something in this in this area. I think the idea was sort of nebulous when we started and we sort of hashed out, you know, there's all these different examples that we have of open education happening, but the faculty development around it sometimes isn't exactly clear and sometimes doesn't get celebrated as much, especially the faculty development around it that is Sometimes whenever we do any kind of learning, it can be kind of removed, right? So we want to talk about a thing rather than do a thing. And so we really wanted to highlight these examples that weren't just talking about ownership, equity, and uh, agency in faculty development. We're just talking about it, but we're actually embodying it. We're actually trying to create environments where it could thrive, And we had a couple of ideas, a couple of instances from people in our networks that we wanted to highlight. 
One of the things that I love about the article is the semi-fictional autoethnography where we both kind of work through and embody stuff that we, you know, we really articulate things that we do every single day just in community with one another, bringing this stuff into our practice, but it's sometimes not visible, right? You can't really see it because it's happening in back channel or because it's stuff that has to sort of come out as a reflection. So I really appreciate the examples in the article as well as the semi-fictional autoethnography in it. I think those are the two things that people have come back to me time and time again and kind of said, those are the pieces that really stood out to them as being something that they felt like they really were able to walk away with something that they felt like really resonated with them and that they, it's sort of an aha moment, like they sort of got it. So yeah, I think I'll just leave it there. Meha, why don't you riff on it for a minute? So I'll, I'll go a step back. So for me, I, I got invited to participate in this journal special issue. And I was taking a course over the summer, an online course on faculty development for faculty developers who've been doing this for a while. And, you know, I kept reading about all the faculty development. I've been working in faculty development for 15 years. And thinking about my own learning as a faculty developer and how that influences what kind of faculty developer I am and recognizing, chatting with Autumn in a back channel the whole time, because that's what we do every day anyway, is that a lot of the faculty development I offer is very different from the my own professional development. So people like Autumn and myself and the autoethnography, the semi-fictional autoethnography shows this, like we're always learning online through Twitter, through virtually connecting, through these other forms that at least my institutional faculty development is nothing like that. If we talk to faculty about, oh, you should try this with your students, but they've never actually tried it themselves. It's a very different kind of thing. And it's scary. Yeah. And if we want to talk to faculty about giving agency and ownership to their students over their learning, then we as faculty developers need to give faculty the opportunity to, to practice their own agency, right? We need to nurture their agency. If we talk to faculty about how important it is to think about equity with students and making sure that their classes are inclusive and their pedagogy is inclusive, then the way we think about faculty development needs to be like that. But then also as an individual, any faculty can do that for themselves, regardless of if they're adjunct, if they're graduate students still, like whoever you are, if someone's reading this article of ours and recognizing that all these things exist out there gives them opportunities to think about how they want their own professional development to be, even if no one is currently mentoring them or directing them in a particular way. So, I mean, that for me, this is no, no one ever told me how to go about this, right? I, I started using Twitter for some reason. And then I started noticing how other people used it and started to join things. And then I discovered things like, Twitter Journal Club, which Laura Gogia had started, which we mentioned in our article. So as a, as a PhD student, I didn't have anyone to read articles with. There wasn't anyone around me in my face-to-face. -face. I didn't know anyone online who would help me. And I had to read all these articles on my own. Uh, and then Twitter Journal Club and Marginal Syllabus now give me a community of people to read articles with online. And yes, sometimes it's someone else who's deciding which article it is, but both of these spaces also allow you to recommend your own articles. And then, you know, as you become part of them, you can just be doing a thing on your own and invite them into your thing and then have just a larger community of people doing it. And I'll, I'll give you another example of myself as a faculty developer, for example, is that I'm, a, I'm in a team of like 15 to 20 people who do faculty development, but I'm the only one who uses hypothesis on a regular basis. 
my professional development is not a one-off thing that goes away. It's ongoing all the time. So I always know what's happening. So I participate in a lot of these marginal syllabus things, right? So I know a lot more about hypothesis than the instructional technologists who are supposed to do the technology <laughs> because they don't use it. They know how it's supposed to work, but they don't know the very specific use cases. They don't know the very specific ways in which it crashes or the very specific ways you can use it in a more complicated way or the ways that there are extra things that you can add onto it so that if you're doing it in a class, you know what I mean? Yeah. So so it's it's this ongoing learning all the time kind of thing in for the things that you you care about that you're interested in and then the, then you, when you apply them in your classes you're confident because you're using them it is so much harder i think to tell faculty oh you know this hypothesis thing it's a cool thing and this is how it works versus if they use it all the time and the, the, then they let your their students use it i think one of the i'm not sure where this fits exactly in the theories that you used or perhaps it's not there and i'm just projecting my own <laughs> on to it. But because we recently had a conversation about marginal syllabus, which will have aired by the time this airs. And one of the things I really like about hypothesis is because you can just get started. And you're off and running Now you're not gonna know all the, you know, ways in which you can expand your use of it. But I mean, create an account, install an extension on your browser, which if somebody doesn't know how to do that is a relatively easy technical skill to learn how yes. to do. And then yes. you're started. You're off and running. And then you can add on additional skills as you go. I recently acquired a piece of technology and was hoping that it would be like that because I, I use a Mac normally. And so I'm just used to like, I know that this is like the common expression, you just plug it in and it works. And I was sort of mm -hmm. thought I had acquired something that was like that. And it was not at all like that. And I'm thinking, you know, how do people just even get started with these things? You know, because there's no like toehold and I'm so frustrated. I want to throw the thing out the window. <laughs> and I, I know as I look over, I, I'm not familiar actually with all of the approaches that you mentioned. And I'm excited to ask in some questions, but at least the ones I am familiar with, they really do just have this ability to come on in. We're ready for you. <laughs> and then to live in what Amy Collier and Jen Ross refer to as not yetness. And you mm. got to have at least a little ability to live in the not yetness. But the tools kind of, in my experience, the ones that you're talking about today really welcome you in. I'm not sure if either of you has a has a thought about that sort of welcoming and, and an ease to, to come on in and then grow from there. I definitely agree with about hypothesis. So with faculty and students are much faster usually than faculty in my context might be different in other contexts. But yeah, you can get hypothesis up and running and demonstrate its value in 10 minutes. Mm -hmm. So this is true. But sometimes a faculty member is coming in and they want something very, very specific to do. And because I know how hypothesis works, I recommend hypothesis for it. So it's a very different thing. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, the purpose. Like I know that hypothesis would be able to do the thing that they want, which is very, very specific. Like there was one where you had, he needed to do private hypothesis annotations, but using hashtags across different articles that were within the library, but not public. Mm -hmm. So because hypothesis works in so many different ways, I knew which combination of things to do to make it work. That that's what I was talking about. But the general way of using hypothesis, yeah, it's, it's quite easy to just get hit the ground running with students. I don't even tell them how to use it. I just tell them use it and they figure it out. 
I think often those things that feel natural to us and feel so welcoming, I think they're pulling on something that we already have some experience with in maybe other contexts. So I think the big thing that makes makes hypothesis so powerful is the fact that it's social. But if you think about the mechanics of what you do, right? You highlight a piece of text and a, a text area pops up that you can write in or, you know, you get your choice. You can either annotate or you can highlight. That's very similar to other technologies, right? That's track changes in Word. That's, uh, you know, and, and just like even annotating physically in a hard copy, right? Like the, the fact that you would highlight something. I mean, those, those all play on experiences that we've had in other environments, but where hypothesis sort of blows everything up is that when you do that, you can make that social and other people can see those, but you don't have to learn those basic mechanical things. You already come to it knowing those things from the other environments and other contexts that you've had. And I think they've just done a really good job of, making that part of it seamless. I don't think you necessarily see it or you think about it when you're in there. It just kind of happens and it feels effortless. And they're not the only such tool. It's, I know collaborative annotation has existed for quite some time, but Hypothesis is the easiest one, I think, to just plug in. You don't need anything. You don't even need the Chrome extension. You can just put via.hypothesis.is and the link and then it's there. So even when it's not your own computer or it's like a university computer that you can't install things on, like the way it is in my class, for example, I can't install things, I think. But I can just get it to run. Whereas with some other tools, you have to install something or you have to log into something. You know, it's just... So there are these little things that make it more accessible. And that helps with the equity piece because you want whatever it is you're offering to be free so that anyone can use it and then to be also equitable and to also not be the kind of thing like even with Hypothesis specifically, I think it's one of the tools that takes the least of your data when you create an account. It just ask for your name and email, that's it. And I think their terms of service or their privacy policy, I've looked at it, it's very human readable. It's not like this 14 page document that's buried in legalese either. It's very human readable. Another tool that, of course, you're both part of from the ground up that's very equity-based is Virtually Connecting. And we have talked about it on the podcast many, many times previously, but you never know when we have someone new listening. And also, I know new things happen inside of Virtually Connecting all the time as you start to shift and see additional opportunities for infusing that equity. It started out, of course, though, of the recognizing that not everyone can get to the conferences they want to get to, whether geographic constraints or cost constraints or some combination. And and I, I was also going to say very much like hypothesis, we in, in autumn, you were saying that something we're used to doing, a lot of us are used to whether it's FaceTime or Google Hangouts or whatever, just, just connecting with others using our phones or our webcams on our computers. And that's something where most of us are accustomed to doing to some extent, and that's all we really need to start to get involved. But of course, it goes deeper than that. Um, do you want to share maybe what's been happening in virtually connecting recently? Or do you want to share a little bit just kind of about what I'm oversimplifying here? So we're put some of the nuance on what I'm sharing. Yeah, so we have a new article coming out soon, where we've defined a new term, intentionally equitable hospitality. One of the things that has always been a tenant of virtually connecting is this idea of hospitality. But we've kind of struggled, I think, in the past with 
thinking about, because I do think virtually connecting does hospitality differently than a lot of other places. And the term hospitality can be somewhat problematic because it can just be reduced to mm-hmm. etiquette, right? It can just be re- reduced to etiquette. It can be reduced to a list of behaviors or a list, a checklist, you know, and if you get everything on the checklist, then you're being hospitable and you're done, right? (laughs) But the problem, especially if you're working with a globally networked virtual hybrid, right? Because we're in virtual spaces, we're in physical spaces. The idea of equity becomes, it, it really problematizes the idea of hospitality, right? Because what's hospitable in one context isn't hospitable in another. And so trying to balance your hospitality across multiple contexts and across the globe it's an interesting dance (laughs) to try to do. And we had some amazing folks who are a part of the community who got to uh, take a deep dive into some of this through the Mozilla. Maha, help me out. What was the, what was the full name of that group? Mozilla Open Leaders? Yes. This is a program that mentors over a semester, almost a group of people working on an open project. Hmm. So um, the virtually connecting was one of the, projects that they mentored and Equity Unbound was another one. Do either or both of you experience the word hospitality when it's just on its own as a gendered word? We thought virtually connecting was a gendered thing, by the way. Mm. I do think of hospitality generally as a gendered thing. And I think in general, if we were to generalize, women tend to be more intuitively hospitable, but not always. One of the issues, though, I'll talk about this in a second in more detail, but that there are situations where a woman's hospitality is not intentionally equitable Mm -hmm. in the sense that the power of the person to which she is being hospitable can steamroll over her in a way that she then becomes less hospitable to other people with less power. Yes. Oh, I see that. (laughs) Yeah. So so let me, I'll I'll, I'll explain, I'll I'll, I'll say this in more detail now, because going back to what virtually connecting is, virtually connecting started as a way to allow me personally, as an Egyptian mom of a young child who's now older, but she's still young, who could not travel to conferences often enough. And at that point, not at all, but now I do travel, but just not often enough. To be able to maintain that social networking aspect of conferences, uh, it wasn't a problem to present virtually, and it wasn't a problem to attend conferences virtually to get the broadcasts, but the problem was those conversations, the informal hallway conversations that I was missing out on. And when Rebecca and I started it, Rebecca Hogan and I started it, it was mainly for a connection between the two of us, but we decided to make it open for other people to join the conversations, but also we recorded them and live streamed them so others could watch, right? So at that point, the transformative potential for those sessions were for me, mainly, and then for other people who joined the conversations. Some of them were adjuncts, some of them were international scholars, some of them were graduate students, but also some of them were people who go to conferences, but they just didn't go to that particular one. So it wasn't really as transformative. It was good, but it wasn't creating an equity thing, right? But after we started doing it more, we started realizing after a while that sometimes you have a session with six men who are the on-site guests or like really high profile people and you're just re-amplifying someone who's really high profile or you're just reproducing power because people who do virtually connecting a lot start to have power. So after doing virtually connecting for a couple of years, I became a keynote speaker at conferences. So I'm not really a person without power anymore in that sense. So it's sort of 
I think it has empowered a lot of us who normally wouldn't have had a voice. So in that sense, it's been transformative for me. But what, what I've been learning through Cheryl Hodgkinson Williams' work building on the work of Nancy Fraser and social justice and applying its openness is that something like virtually connecting, it has a social justice potential, but it's not in every single context in every single case and not for every single person. So for some people who don't have an internet connection at all, who have very poor broadband, for whom synchronous conversations are traumatic, virtually connecting would be a negative experience. Mm -hmm. For someone who is at a conference who does not like to be broadcasted talking, then asking them to join a virtually connecting experience would create anxiety and would not make them happy and it would not be a positive experience. And on the other hand, if we keep amplifying white male keynote speakers and not inviting lesser known voices, for example, it would be a negative experience in terms of equity. I mean, it's probably fun for whoever else wants to be there because sometimes someone who's like a graduate student wants to meet that person and has is going to learn a lot from being in that situation with that high profile person because they've never had a chance to talk to them. And then the, the other aspect of it is that you could put people in a conversation together, but then not give the virtual folks an opportunity to speak or like have the, the on-site guests steamroll over them and hog the entire conversation. And so again, that would not achieve equity. And so what we were trying to talk about in terms of intentionally equitable hospitality is that sometimes you actually have to be not as polite or not as nice to the powerful person in the conversation in order to make sure that the less powerful groups have the opportunity to have a voice and to speak and to get what they want out of the conversation. So sometimes you will schedule a session at a time that suits the virtual folks over the, you still have to fit the schedule of the onsite folks, but you start with, is there someone virtual who's interested in meeting these people? Is there someone virtual who's free before you set up a time? You know? Yeah. Yeah. The, those three words together, I just, I, you know, I'm, I'm learning from the two of you right now, just, just how they interplay <laughs> and they, each one by themselves would be insufficient. And then they come together and there's just all this richness to unpack. It's a lot. It took us such a long time to reach that <laughs> term actually. Yeah, it did. It did. We went back and forth about what, because we, we realized that hospitality wasn't really cutting it. And we were like, well, how are we going to describe this thing? It's a lot. It's a lot to unpack. And for a while, we used radical hospitality. And I think that's worth mentioning here because it resonates a lot, this mm -hmm. concept of radical hospitality, but it also has roots in some religious context. And it's not at all where it came from. Mm. But then the other aspect was that someone would hear the term radical and not be sure what we mean by it because it can have yes. so many different political connotations, which is not what we meant. So we thought like intentionally equitable is a very clear, to me, it seems clear of what we're trying to, to say. You do it intentionally and you intend to be equitable and, you know, you want to be hospitable in an intentionally equitable way. <laughs> yeah. And I, to me, it, and maybe it's just my own response to the word radical, but radical to me maybe sometimes says, you know, we're really on top of this now and it's this big thing and we're, you know, mixing things up and disrupting things, but then we're going to be done someday. <laughs> you know, and So intentionally equitable hospitality to me speaks to the sustained seemingly small but enormous effort that goes into this. I think of you so often whenever I look at my homepage of teaching in higher ed because it, it shows the four or five most recent episodes and it has a circle picture of each of those guests. 
<laughs> if that ever gets to look too off from the kind of diversity that I want to implore on the program, I'm also shaking my head thinking she's going to be so disappointed in me, even though I know, <laughs> I know you don't go to my website that often, but it's just like you from uh, the first time I ever met you have been challenging me in such important ways. And I'm so appreciative for that. But thank you so much for picking up on the continuity thing. I think the intentionally versus intentional yeah. makes it continue. I hadn't thought of that, I think. And again, Autumn, I'm sure we discussed it, but I like your observations here. Well, and of course, it's just me projecting things on that may not be there too. <laughs> so, just how I take it in. Well, I, I want to make sure I don't let too much time pass by where I don't ask, get to ask a little bit and have you share about a couple of the ones that may be less familiar to listeners of this podcast. I know you each share a lot about these things, but not, not as, you know, always as much on the show. So let's start with Ditch Pins. And Autumn, would you share about that effort? DigPins is an acronym. It stands for Digital Pedagogy Identity Networks and Scholarship. It is an open faculty development curriculum that's available at digpins.org, D-I-G-P-I-N-S. It was originally created, imagined and created and designed between Sunday Richard and Daniel Lyons when they were at St. Norbert College. They're now at Davidson College. For a while, I worked at St. Norbert College and deployed the curriculum. And uh, last year, I think, yeah, last year, we started like running it concurrently between institutions. So it's a faculty development curriculum that takes place completely online. The content is to look at digital pedagogy identity networks and scholarships. So each week we address each one of those things. But when we started running it concurrently with other institutions, it became more networked. So we're still working on that and running it. I think there's some institutions that are thinking about running it this summer. We're having some conversations about it. The curriculum is open. Anybody can go to digpins.org and take a look at the curriculum that we have there. But we also invite people to contact us through the website and work with us to create these kind of networked experiences. And it's all hashed out in that article that we were talking about, too, that Meha and I co-authored together. So if they're looking for more of a description of what it is, the article on the website, I think, do a good job of it. Oh, absolutely. And there's there's one more I want to ask you to share about either of you before we go to the recommendations. And that is one that I'm the least familiar with. And that is, I know what a MOOC is. And I imagine mm -hmm. that MOOC with an S means more than one. And then the front is dual pathway MOOCs. So what can you share with us right. about that? Right. I think they have a new term for it. And Autumn, if you remember it, is it dual layer? But the idea of the, the dual pathway is we know about MOOCs that are inside a space like Coursera or edX, the more what familiar to people. And then we know about the connectivist MOOCs that are up on like Twitter and social media and you do whatever you want, whenever you want kind of thing. And the dual pathway, I think, is great in terms of recognizing individual agency, but also equity in the sense that you can choose between the two at any point. So it's not like you choose to go totally connectivist with the same MOOC, right? So you're learning the same general learning goals, same topic, but you can either go just stick to the LMS or, you know, the closed space of the Coursera or edX and just use the discussion forums there and do the assignments there or whatever, or you can go out on social media and blog about it and do whatever you want, or you can go back and forth between them depending on where you're most comfortable. Mm. And I think 
the first thing is to recognize that a faculty member doing professional development really should have the opportunity to do that, whether they're doing it like with an online thing on their own or in formal faculty development, they should have the opportunity to switch paths. And that if we want to encourage people to try that with their students, maybe they want to experience it themselves as well before they try that kind of thing with students, because it's a bit scary sometimes to allow different students to do different assignments or to have different pathways through your own course. So that's generally what that means. The dual layer concept to me sounds like more descriptive of what you're describing. So I'll have to, I mean, I'll look and see if I can find things to post in the show links on either of those, you know, approaches, but, and of course, back to the yeah. article, which articulates Yeah, because it it's well. not really two pathways, right? There are like a thousand different pathways, right? You can keep going back and forth. You can do both together. So yeah, it's probably the, the layers is probably the better way. Yeah. I think Matt Crossland has done a lot of work in that area. And he's the one we cite mainly. He's the one we cite mainly. In our, yeah, he's done it with several different people, I think. But he's the common person. Well, before we get on to the recommendation segment, I know I just barely skimmed the surface. <laughs> so any last thought you want to add before we transition into that? I think for me, as a faculty developer, this article was about walking the talk, I think. So that if I know something works or something that I think people should try with their students, I think I should apply it to my faculty development practice and not just to my own teaching. And I think that is generally lacking. And it's not, maybe some faculty developers don't do the kinds of things that Autumn and I do anyway in our daily lives, but I, I think we need to give faculty the opportunity to experience them so that they can then decide, you know, to have the agency then to decide what works for them and then based on that be able to, to make better choices for what works with their teaching philosophy with their students. Yeah, I think if I can build off of that a little bit, another thing that I'll call out call out <laughs> is that the, the article is a call, right? It's a call for ownership, agency, and equity in faculty development via connected learning. And that was a really important piece that we addressed in the introduction. It was a part of a larger series of articles that was to address the future of higher education, digital approaches in higher education kind of thing. And the problem with addressing the future a lot of times is that when folks try to do it, they do get very deterministic and they try to predict the future. This article was not an attempt to predict the future so much as to call for a future that is more equitable and, and does create those outcomes that address agency and ownership. So that's just something that I'd like to kind of end with is, is remembering that context as well. Today's episode is sponsored by Text Expander, and we're grateful for their continued support of the show now for more than a year. And I have shared previously that it is a tool that I install as among the first applications anytime I get a new device, a computer or a smartphone, what have you. And what it does is it takes messages or data that I may repeat over and over again and makes that process automated. So when, when I want to type in a work phone number, I just type in the little snippet, the little shortcut of keys that I know to, to insert that. And I don't even have to remember my work phone number and I never do. And if I've got the show notes ready to go for an episode, I just type in T-I-H-E as in teaching in higher ed SN for show notes, and all of a sudden it fills in with all the information I'm going to need to include in those 
show notes. So I would really recommend that you check out Text Expander and see how it might be able to help save you time and also improve the quality of messages that might go out amongst a team. You might have emails that you want to sound the same, and you can also personalize them, but you might want to sound the same across various team members, for example. If you go to textexpander.com slash podcasts, you'll be able to learn more about Text Expander. Let them know you heard about it from us here on Teaching in Higher Ed and get a discount all for visiting that site 20% off your first year. So thanks again to Text Expander for saving me so much time and so many headaches. And thanks also for sponsoring today's episode. And now on to the recommendations segment. This is the point in the show where we each get to share our recommendations and mine is related to the last line of the article. Oh no, sorry, the first line of the article. You would think I could get that straight. (laughs) This is how you begin. The very first sentence is a quote and I actually can't pronounce the individual's name, but the quote is imagination of how things could be otherwise is central to the initiation of the transformative process. And it's M-E-Z-I-R-O-W. Mesero. Mesero. <laughs> and the, the reason I wanted to share about that particular quote is that I've just been obsessed lately with the idea of imagination and how a lack of it can really hinder our work in every area of our lives. And I've been doing a lot of speaking around this, just even just on this word and this concept of imagination, and often playing clips from a This American Life episode. It's number 490, and it's called Trends with Benefits. And Mm -hmm. the interview is Hannah Joffe-Walt going out and spending some time as a journalist in the community in the United States that has the highest claims of disability in the nation. And she ends up having a conversation with this woman and asking her about her dream job. And I don't want to give too much away because I want to recommend that people listen to it. But the woman's dream job is limited by her imagination and how her entire life has been framed by her disability and her constant pain. And it's just a really, really powerful look at that. And if you'd like to hear me share a little bit more about that, I was able to speak at the CCC Digital Learning Day event recently. And there's a link I'll put in the show notes that would allow you to watch that talk and and hear those clips and, and get a little bit more of my description than I have time to give now. But I'm captivated just by this idea of how we could all just continually be working to expand our imagination. And I could see why you chose this as the the starting point for the article, just because it really just frames so much of when we do these kinds of things that you are prescribing, we just have that continuous expansion of our own imagination, and it helps in so many areas of our life. So thank you for that. And Matt, I'm going to pass it over to you. Thank you. So I've got three things on my mind very quickly. One of them is I'm really, really inspired by the work of Cheryl Hodgkinson Williams, and she recently co-authored, she's from the University of Cape Town, South Africa, and she recently co-authored a paper with Henry Trotter about applying social justice models to open educational resources and practices. And that article, I'm going to give you the link to that. That's, That's definitely an article worth looking at so that people who care about equity and social justice can look at different ways of applying it to the way we use educational technology, for example. Another thing, building sort of slightly on that, is I'm working with Cheryl Tannis Morgan and Teskin Adam 
on a workshop at the OER 19 conference in April. I'm not sure if this episode will be out by then. But that, that workshop is on decolonizing open. Can we decolonize open? And we've written a blog post about that, which I can share. And the workshop will be hybrid because I'm not going to be at the conference. So others can join that workshop if they want it. And the third thing I want to share is slightly different. There's a new network for educators called 1HE. It's kind of like a learning community that's a lot like social media, but it's mainly for educators. And it's sort of semi-closed, semi-open. And I'm interested in exploring that space because of the way it's designed to sort of be a supportive space for faculty or educators to, to work together. So it's not like, you know, you go to Twitter and then you create your own hashtag and you have a space on Twitter. No, it's a space that's only for educators. It's, I think, for the first few months, it's free. And then after that, it's a very small fee. And that, depending on where you're from in the world, it can be really affordable. And the reason they take money for it is that to keep it sustainable and they don't collect your data in the same way that social media does. And because they offer things like small grants to people who are part of the community and mentoring among people. And I'm, I'm excited to see how that goes. It's very, very new. And I'm on the advisory board, but I, I agreed to join the advisory board because I'm interested in, in how this might develop. So other people might be interested and I can leave the link to that as well. Thank you so much. And thanks for the links. I'm, I'm trying to search, but some of them I'm not finding. So that'll be helpful for me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and Autumn, how about you? Okay, so I got to, I was able to attend the Open Education Conference in Niagara Falls a couple of months ago, and Jess Mitchell was a keynote at that event, and uh, that keynote presentation is available on YouTube. I'll get you the link to it. It's a great presentation. I think that everybody should watch it. Another thing connected to Jess's work is the Inclusive Design Guide, which I believe was developed by her office, and I've just been spending a lot of time on this thing. It's not a linear guide. It's something that you can kind of dive into and sort of come at from a bunch of different directions in terms of insight, practices, tools, and activities. And I love those kind of things that I can just kind of jump into from multiple directions. So I've been spending a lot of time in that. The other one that's been on my mind lately, there's a new article out from Donna Lonclo and Lori Phipps in the Irish Journal of Technology Enhanced Learning called Trust, Innovation, and Risk, Contextual Inquiry into Teaching Practices and the Implications for the Use of Technology. It's a great qualitative study of faculty's use of technology that doesn't start with technology, that starts with the experience of faculty members as teachers but ask questions about technology, especially the work around trust is very interesting to me. So I'll get you the links to all of that, Bonnie. Thank you so much, Autumn. And thanks to both of you for coming back on the podcast and sharing all these rich things for us to think about. And and, that, and you started out talking not just think about, but actually do something with. And you've lived up to that promise for us today. I hope people will go visit the show notes and take a look at these things and start doing some stuff and experimenting. Thanks to both of you so much for being here. I'm so grateful for this, once again, opportunity to speak with Meha Bali and Autumn Keynes. Thanks to each of you for being on today's show. And thanks to all of you for listening. If you are not already on Twitter and wanting to explore it, all three of us are up there and you can find links to our Twitter accounts on the show notes. And we'd love to engage with you there as you start to explore some of these ways of expanding your own professional and faculty development. 
And please feel free to connect with us there. And we're looking forward to upcoming episodes where we continue to be challenged in these ways. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time.